So we're here with Brian Bianchetti, the general manager for People's Choice Beef Jerky, um, a direct-to-consumer brand that produces craft-made beef jerky. Um, this is a long-standing family business out of California, so a really, really terrific story. We're going to be talking about commerce broadly and more specifically about Brian's observations on how to build a brand today in an era where um, perhaps it's never been easier to start a store online, but perhaps never been harder to grow a store sustainably, given competition from Amazon and millions of other direct-to-consumer competitors. Um, Brian, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your journey to where you are today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excited to, to be here talking with you today. Um, so in, in the introduction, you, know, you touched on uh, a bit of our company and in many ways, our company is very connected to me being a family business. Um, you know, it's a really important piece of what we do is, is our heritage, is our tradition. So my great grandfather started the company in 1929 and it's been passed down from generation to generation. Um, and each, each generation has impacted the business in a different way. And uh, as the fourth generation, the opportunity that I saw and was able to take advantage of was um, modernizing our business uh, in a sort of a digital way and taking advantage of e-commerce specifically. Um, so basically taking an existing business um, that had manufacturing capabilities, had you know, more traditional uh, distribution and being able to evolve it uh, and, and in many ways transform it for a modern audience and um, more digital uh, channels. So take us, take us back a little bit. So you finished college and then immediately um, moved home to work in the family business or were there steps in between? It's a good question. Um, so I had a, uh, a stop in Chicago uh, from uh, school in New York and then eventually coming home to LA. And while I was in Chicago, I worked for uh, an advertising agency. Uh, had the opportunity to work on uh, several different CPG brands um, and with the focus on both brand building and then digital. Um, and it wasn't, uh, it was lucky to have that opportunity, but it was strategic and that I, I knew that, that there was an opportunity with our family business to grow in those, uh, sort of those facets. And so I wanted to develop an expertise in the space to be able to come back and, and, and make those changes and make those updates. So, um, you know, was, was working when Facebook ads were first up coming out, um, and sort of saw the evolution in some ways of the really early stage um you know e-commerce and then digital marketing tools uh and, and really got my feet wet there um but then was able to come home and then help help build the business in that in that way and, and continue that education and that development of, of skills that seems like it was a super useful stop absolutely it's it's funny i, I try to give myself credit but i really can't there's a bit of luck involved as well but <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was very helpful so you could so Timeline wise, you're back to, you're back with people's choice mm -hmm. in like 2012, 2013. Um, yes, exactly. So I've been back with the business for six, six years now, about six, seven years. Okay, cool. uh, so um, tell us a little bit about people's choice. What, what, what should people understand about the business and the different channels through which it sells? Yeah. So um, we uh, historically have been uh, primarily built for uh, B2B and um, private label. So we had our, our own brands um, and they were a, a mix of what we did, but I would say the majority of the business is really focused on um, sort of wholesale, more traditional um, distribution channels to retail um, and 
into you know these more wholesale markets. So we had this great product that we were making um, that was really based in high quality ingredients, um, you know, simple handmade process. So for me as a marketer to come back, I had this fantastic foundation to build upon. So my job was kind of easy. It was just a matter of, um, you know, telling that really good story and taking that really good product and finding ways to, to both find those, those, that new target audience and be able to sell it to them. And that's exactly where our, you know, the e-commerce came from is being able to tell, you know, a really compelling brand story in engaging ways. Uh, and then actually take advantage of that story by selling, um, to an audience across the country. Um, so in a lot of ways I was able to take advantage of, of the opportunities that we had existing here. It was just finding the ways that we could do that. Awesome. So, you know, it's kind of interesting when people need to take a business that's been around for a long time and help modernize it, and help move it into a direct consumer world. Is that harder or easier in the context of a family business? Uh, the, working in a family business is definitely a unique experience. Uh, <laughs> I think we're lucky because we really like each other, but you know, like any business it has its own unique set of challenges. Um, but like overall, we're, we're very lucky to, to work together. And, you know, I think being a multi-generational family, a lot of the, um, sort of challenges that my dad and I worked through, he went through with his dad. And so mm. bringing that experience to the table so that it makes it, you know, it, it helps us all grow both in, in our interpersonal relationships, but then also as, as a business as well. Um, and he's always been really good as far as giving me the leeway to be able to make the changes that I see as being important. And we've been able to, you know, benefit from those over the past few years. That's cool. It's awesome. So tell us about, um, you know, kind of the, today is the company selling through wholesale channels still, is it still doing any um, private label stuff or is it fully D to C? And can you give us a sense of the channels? Cause I, I think it's an omni-channel brand, isn't it? We are, yeah. So um, it's also a really interesting story. When I started, I guess it was about six years ago, we had, I would say our online business was 5% of our total business. And just this last year, it is now 55 percent of our overall business so wow. not only is it making up a larger percentage of our business but it's also been the largest driver of growth um and and in a lot of ways we were very strategic in that decision we, we understood sort of the evolving shopping behaviors um and i think especially with everything going on recently the ability to sell direct to consumer and not rely solely on retail distribution has been I mean, essential to our survival, basically. Um, and we've been very lucky from, from that change in sort of um, the mix of our channels. Um, I think coming from more of a traditional distribution retail model and moving to DDC had its own unique set of challenges. Um, you know, we didn't want to cannibalize the other channels. We didn't want to step on the toes of our distributors um, by selling direct. And so there's been... Um, some challenges with that as far as figuring that out, but thankfully for us as a sort of a impulse item at retail, um, our online shoppers looks very different than our retail shopper. Um, and we've been able to differentiate that in a way where our distributors continue to benefit and, and you know, be profitable and, and have a business, but then we can also take advantage of selling direct um, online. I had wanted to 
maybe a little later in the conversation, get into tactically how you guys have thought about loyalty and extending the lifetime value of an online customer. Um, it's interesting to hear the purchase being described as impulse online. Is it impulse or is it quite different online and more recurring? Online is different. Um, so uh, what we found with our online shoppers, it really segments into two groups. The first being the core jerky consumer. This is somebody who's buying in bulk. They're buying with you know, pretty high frequency. They love jerky, right? They put it in their drawer, they put it in their car, and they're consuming it pretty regularly. Um, so they're looking for uh, order convenience, like something like a recurring order. They're looking for loyalty programs. They're looking for um, features that make their ordering easier um, and the product more consistent and reliable. The second segment of our online audience are gift givers. Uh, so we've been able to take advantage of bundling and repackaging our jerky in these like thoughtful and unique gifts and being able to address sort of the challenges that people are, are facing when it comes to finding unique gift solutions. Um, so we have a consumable product, it's a great story. We have these like little bundles that make it all super easy. Um, so we have also been able to attract and really build out our sort of the gift giving side of, of our business as the secondary audience. That's super interesting. Okay, so let's, let's imagine that our audience are half million to $2 million e-commerce stores, um, often built on top of Shopify or big commerce or Magento to some extent. Um, can you describe a little bit about um, the technology tools that you've put in place to grow the business? And then, then can you describe the channels that have been most effective for you to grow online? Yeah, for sure. So um, I, I think it's incredible the tools that are available to like e-commerce companies and brands. Like it in many ways has really leveled the playing field and I'm coming from it of the perspective of like, we are a tiny, tiny company in the beef jerky space compared to our multi-billion dollar competitors. But the tools available, especially for e-commerce, like levels the playing field in a, in a really powerful way. Um, and I think we're a good example of um, what you can do if, if you're able to create you know, a tech stack that really um, allows you to do more and be more effective with what you're doing. So, um, you know, for us with, um, you know, our Shopify platform, we integrate um, several different tools that sort of address the, the different steps of the stages of the funnel. So whether it's, um, you know, big ones being um, creating content to drive people into our website, um, capturing that traffic either through email capture or hopefully conversion, uh, and then retargeting after. Um, it really, I think there's tools at each stage of the, of the funnel that has allowed us to, to optimize and continue to grow in a, in a profitable way, which is an important piece of that. That's super interesting. So you kind of think about the stack through the lens of acquisition, conversion, and retention is what it sounds like. I do, yeah, I, I do. And, that, and that's a way for us to kind of simplify it down in a way where it's easier for us to track, okay, what is everything doing for us? Because the other part of this thing is that there are there is so much out there yeah. that um, it can be you know it can be like analysis paralysis where you don't know what to do when you're just doing these things because that's what the new things is um, you know that everyone's saying that you should do. So for us, we really kind of break it down into that into that funnel, and then we break it down to like the levers that we can pull. Whether it's okay, average order value is going to be a priority for us, or conversion is going to be a priority for us, or traffic, and we really try to think about it in those ways. Um, and, and, and that's sort of how we built, um, our, our, our overall stack and then drive growth. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So 
over, let's go let's go back six years ago seven years ago you're coming into the business at a time when a lot of direct to consumer brands are coming online they've they've been enabled with tools like shopify that have made it cheaper to start the store tools like stripe but they've also been enabled with um advertising that may be more targeted and cheaper than it's ever been in the history of the world arguably that starts to change over the last three years. Advertising gets more and more expensive. So can you talk a little bit about your experience with growing um, across the social platforms and across the search platforms and then how that's evolved over the last three years for you guys? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to your point, I think even six years ago, even two or three years ago, it was way more cost effective. Like customer acquisition was, was much cheaper, just plain and simple. Um, I think, there was still a novelty to a lot of the tools and there's still a lot of opportunity in targeting um, users at a really cost-effective way and that the market just become saturated. There's so many more D2C brands out there. I mean, even in the jer jerky space, you know, over the past few years, there's been so many new entrants into the market. Um, so even in our small little world, it's gotten more saturated and competitive. And so, um, you know, as those costs have evolved, so has the way that we've thought about customer acquisition and lifetime value. Um, I would say that we have a slightly different perspective than many other companies in that um, because we're, you know, a multi-generational business, because we're, we've been around for so long, the way that I think about our business um, and the business that we want to become and the business that we want to be, um, I think about a big picture. So for me, I'm more interested in maybe even paying a little bit more to acquire a customer if I know that that customer is gonna give me a, a higher lifetime value. And I don't necessarily um, need, to, need to drive growth at a certain rate or, or need to like, you know, grow the number of sales. Um, you know, I'm more focused on the quality and the profitability of that growth. Um, I'm looking at it over the course of you know, a lifetime. Um, and we're, you know, we're not beholden to investors or other parties involved. Like ultimately what I want to do is build a profitable, durable business. Um, and I think that relationship between, um, you know, customer acquisition costs and then lifetime value is, is an important one because ultimately that's going to be, are we able to profitably grow? Yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, I think it would be another way to say that is we've seen a lot of direct to consumer brands get funded there's venture capital and private equity that's poured into this space and there's been an, an, an immense focus on growth at all costs and that's that that might that might work in a venture capital world but it doesn't work when you're actually trying to build a profitable customer that's going to be a customer for a long time and so there's been this mismatch between the number of customers you have and the number that actually buy a second or third or fourth time right um, and that's yeah. like a no, that's exactly the way that I would put it. And, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm lucky because I come from a background of like my dad running the business where like it was always about the bottom line. It was always about the money that was in your pocket at the end of the day. And, and, and you know, being able to, to build a company that supports many different employees. Um, so, you know, I kind of came from that background. So when these conversations were happening about like important metrics, like for me, it was always like, okay, but at the end of the day, you know, are we making money? Are we acquiring customers at a, at a really cost-effective way? Um, can you can you give listeners a little bit of a sense of how you guys um, analyze and report on the business? Do you hold, as as a family business, do you have a board? Do you report monthly? Do you report quarterly? How do you how do you look at the business's fundamentals together? Yeah, so that's that's a really good question. So I think 
the important piece that you said is family business and the second piece that maybe should be included is small business. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's really us. I mean, it's, it's my dad, it's me, um, my sister, who's also in the fourth generation, who does a lot of the day-to-day -day marketing is also very involved in the reporting. Um, so for us, you know, it's a mixture of me sort of spearheading a lot of the analysis and a lot of the management of it and, and sort of, delegating and reporting out those numbers um, that kind of informs our strategy. But my sister and I, you know, meet on a monthly basis to review everything that we have done the, the month before and then looking at, okay, what are we doing next? Like, how can we adjust? How can we improve? Um, I have like, my own internal reports that I use, like little scorecards that look at key indicators in the business that um, may not be for a lay person looking at it, it might not make necessarily that much sense because it's not your big P&L type metrics. It's really nuanced to our business. For example, I look at um, my weekly meet costs. I look at um, how many emails we've added in a week. I look at um, employee performance, but it's these little things that I know will ultimately impact the P&L and impact the bigger picture. But if, but if I can look at it on a weekly basis and see we're doing, you know, good at each of these little measures, then that's, that's going to be, you know, it's going to have a positive impact um, on the larger business. Right. That sounds like you're, you're tracking pretty meticulously these important leading indicators. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, those lead, exactly, leading indicators give us a better idea of how, how our performance is looking. Um, so yeah, so I, you know, it probably could be better measured and better tracked and, and, and we could be better about having those meetings, but um, you know, a lot of that does kind of happen in, in, in real time because we are such a small team and it's, it's not a perfect world. That's super cool. Well, so, you know, a lot of what we're trying to produce with this summit is conversations around how companies are, are seeking to differentiate. And you've, you've alluded to the fact that there's now a lot of competition from other small direct consumer startups, but also that there are huge incumbent players. Can you talk a little bit about Give us a sense of the landscape that you guys are competing in. Who is the competition? And um, tell us a little bit about it. So um, within the sort of the, the jerky space, um, I always make the joke that we're living in a jerky renaissance. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, over the, over the past, you know, three to five years, you've seen the, the, the jerky sort of industry really evolve. Um, and you've had these new entrants to the market that I think in a lot of ways have, um, made jerky more appealing to a wider audience, whether that's through, you know, new product benefits, whether it's through new flavors. Um, and so jerky to a certain extent has kind of grown up. Um, and it also has, has, has benefited from checking a lot of, you know, boxes as far as what consumers are looking for being, you know, high protein, being portable, being all natural, um, you know, I think has also driven a lot of that growth. So um, the space looks a lot different now than it did maybe five, 10 years ago, but um, you have your, your big multi-billion dollar companies um, that are distributed across the country or basically everywhere. Um, and that's on the one side of the spectrum and then on the other side of the spectrum, you have your smaller producers that, you know, either maybe startups or be on the newer side that are more niche. Um, and, and we're kind of in the middle, um, I would say, you know, we are what makes us different than all of our competitors is our connection to the the product that we make in the sense that you know the ingredients that we use the the handmade process that everything is made here that attention to detail that we're able to invest in um, sort of separates us from that larger audience but 
Um, you know, I think the question you ask about like positioning and the importance of positioning, it's a conversation that we're constantly having. I mean, we've been around for 90 plus years and have a pretty strong identity, but that's changing. That's always changing. And we're always, and that's always a conversation that we're having to say, you know, what are customers looking for? What do they want? And how can we better address that? And so, you know, who we are is definitely an evolution, um, even as, you know, as we speak. Yeah, and if you're not aware of that need for constant evolution, that's that's where you can get into trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And like ultimately for us, like what we do is about people. Um, I know it sounds like a little cliche, but you know we are we are people making a product for people, um, and so that really informs everything that that we do. You know, we're not trying to create a product that's going to do something more than just serving a need of our customers. Um, and, and so I think the, the people element at the core of what we do is, is a really important piece of that and something that I think a lot of e-commerce brands can, can keep in mind when they're building their stuff is, you know, who is our customer? What do they want? And ultimately addressing that from like a person to person level. So do you feel like, um, you know, as you, as, as you, as you study the ongoing evolution of, of people's choices, people's choices, positioning, do you feel that you guys are differentiating based on product primarily, based on business model, based on um, brand? How do, you, how do you think about kind of those ideas as the, the core drivers of differentiation? Or are there any other ideas that you would add to that mix? No, that's, that's a really good way of thinking about it. I mean, I think it's hard to ignore like our history and our heritage that will always inform who we are just because we have been around for so long. And it's something that nobody else can really compete with. Who else can say that? So that would be more brand, right? Yeah, so I think that that would be a connection to our our brand identity, but then also the ideals of that brand. So, you know, what does it mean to be a fourth generation business? Um, what does it mean to be a family business? And how does that inform our products? And how does that inform the product that we make? I mean, you know, the, we make a product that we would consume ourselves, that we would give to our families, that we would eat as a family. Um, and so I think that, you know, that brand identity translates into products. Um, you know, our products have evolved over the years. We've taken in, you know, added in new ingredients, taken out other ingredients. Um, and, and so I think that, that is, that is uh, I think, influenced by, by like our brand and our, and our brand positioning of our, of our heritage and our history. Yeah, super interesting. Um, where does Amazon play in the world of jerky, the jerky space? Yeah. Um, so we have an interesting relationship with Amazon. Um, we have, I'll admit, like benefited greatly from Amazon. Um, so we uh, started on Amazon about four to five years ago, and we started as a test. We just put products on there. Let's see how it does as an opportunity to find new customers, build our business a little bit. And month over month, it, it's grown uh, to the point now where it's, it's a major piece of what we do. Um, and so we look at Amazon, um, I mean, we've benefited undoubtedly from it, but it comes with its own set of risks and challenges. Um, you know, we don't own any of that customer data. So it's ultimately an Amazon customer, not a people's choice customer. Um, we also understand the risks with like potentially running into issues with suspensions and, and product delisting and all that kind of stuff. Um, so we're always aware of the risks inherent to Amazon uh, and, and, and always keep in mind the, the, that ultimately we want to build our own website and our own ownable channels. Uh, but those things can sort of exist together. Or at least we've been able to create a world in which they can exist together. Um, so again, it depends on every brand and your positioning and your identity and, and sort of who you want to be, where you want to be sold. But for us, 
it's, it's been, uh, it's definitely been something that we've benefited from um, and, and, and worked towards continuing to grow. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe kind of one other question about tactics around differentiation and then, and then um, move into a couple, a couple of closing questions. But tactically, when you think about increasing loyalty, and when you increase, when you think about increasing lifetime value, how have you all managed to do that most successfully? Can you give listeners like um, discrete examples that they might be able to apply to their own businesses? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think the way that we think about loyalty, um, it really starts with our product. So we're lucky because our product is, uh, there, there's a recurring element to it, right? As a consumable product that people are going to come back to it um, if they like it, if they try it and they enjoy it, they're going to come back and purchase it again, add it to their pantry and become, you know, there's a recurring element in there. So if you have a product like that, you can benefit from that in terms of creating things like recurring cart feature, allowing people to set up subscriptions, um, and then marketing around that, segmenting around that, finding, okay, you know, if somebody orders um, on day one, what day do you, are they most likely to order again? And then creating marketing tactics around, you know, reaching out to them, it's time to reorder, and then, you know, going back, going through the whole, like, win back process. If you don't have a product that has that, you know, inherent, um, uh, like return quality to it. I, I think there's ways to build it out in terms of adding ancillary products or supplemental or complementary products to build that and encouraging people to come back with those types of products. Um, so for us, uh, I would say that we, we try to build it into what we do in, in terms of creating those recurring orders and moving people from one-time orders to recurring orders. Um, and then we also have implemented a loyalty program, which encourages repeat buying. Um, this is like an anecdotal example. We have like a win back program um, and we have, um, you know, two different, two different branches on that tree. And one is, uh, is all about like giving a discount for somebody to come back and purchase. And then the other tree is saying that, hey, you have points, loyalty points left to spend. And the one with the loyalty points, like, consistently outperforms the other one. And there's something about people being part of like a loyalty program and having money to spend in there that just, it just performs that much better. So yeah. for us, like loyalty has been a really powerful tool to encourage repeat purchases. Yeah, it's super interesting. It's a great example. Um, imagine you've got uh, an entrepreneur who started a business over the last three years. They're selling on Shopify, they're selling on Amazon they've made their way to a half million dollars in annual revenue. What advice do you have for them at this point in the game? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, Let me put a finer cap on that question. They've, they've, they're not quite profitable yet. They have managed to reduce CAC over the last couple of years, but it's still a little bit too high. Mm -hmm. Lifetime value is improving, but they're not quite at the ratio that they want to be from a CAC to LTV standpoint. And their goal is profitability within the next 12 months. Um, so I would say that um, the first thing that we found in our experience is that it's always much more cost effective to sell to a current customer than it is to attract a new customer. And, and that's like, you know, a bit of an obvious statement, but it's really important um, in terms of how you build your marketing tactics, where I don't think from my experience that 
people spend enough time on marketing to their current customer base versus trying to acquire new customers. There's so, there's such a focus on bringing in new people where, you know, with most audiences, especially like, let's say at a half a million dollars, you have a pretty good customer base at that level. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a bigger opportunity to focus on, on that audience. And then the second piece, like, let's say, for example, if you're selling on Amazon, you're selling on your website. Another way that we've sort of used Amazon to a certain extent is using that more of like a cash flow opportunity um, and then taking the revenue that we've generated from our Amazon business, obviously continue to refill Amazon and build that out uh, even more, but taking that money and then putting it back into your website. Um, and we've sort of used those two, um, those two channels in terms of the way that we've used our, our money and investing it back into the business. That's super helpful advice, very tactical. Um, Brian, thank you so much for this time. Uh, this has been super helpful for, for us and hopefully for listeners as well. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, this, is, this is really cool.